Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. Something beautiful about silence and self-control in a world full of anger and outrage. There's something beautiful about it, almost, almost otherworldly. Take, for example, the true story that happened in the 1930s. I've shared this once before. There were three young guys that hopped on a bus in Detroit one day. They were feeling rather manly, like picking a fight. So they saw a stranger seated at the back of the bus, seemed like an easy target. And so they started hassling him, heckling him, calling him names, but he just sat there in silence. So they got closer, gathering around him, increasing the insults, even at one point hitting him on the back, but still he remained silent and didn't respond. Well, finally, the bus came to a stop, and the stranger got up from his seat, and it turns out he was much bigger than they had realized from his seated position. The man walked to the middle of the bus, uh, turned around, reached into his pocket, pulled out his business card, and gave it to the young guys seated there, and then headed and hopped off the bus and was gone. So as the bus moved on, the young guys gathered together around this business card to look at who on the earth this bizarre stranger could be. And to their horror, they read these words, Joe Lewis, boxer. They had almost picked a fight with the 11-time heavyweight champion of the world. They were in the presence of greatness and didn't even know it. Something beautiful about silence and self-control, the quiet strength and willing restraint. And when you're secure in who you are, you don't have to talk too much. You don't have to defend yourself because you're swept up into something bigger than yourself. You're slow to speak. You exercise restraint. You have self-control. In other words, you're a lot like Jesus. If you're new with us, we are in a series that we're finishing up today called The Fruit of the Spirit in the Life of Jesus. This comes right from Galatians 5.22, which says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. So self-control is last on Paul's list So what is it? What is self-control? Here's one definition. Jerry Bridges defines it like this. He says, the exercise, self-control is the exercise of inner strength that enables us to do, think, and say things that are pleasing to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. The exercise of inner strength that enables us to do, think, and say things that are pleasing to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Men, we usually typically think of self-control in terms of, of our battle with lust. Women, on the other hand, in reference to their eating habits, or so I've heard. 
But when you look at the Bible, when you look at the Bible, it puts a lot more emphasis on our words. It seems like the hardest thing to have self-control over is our words. James chapter 3 says we can't tame our tongue. I mean, we can tame all kinds of wild animals from the littlest of dogs to the huge killer whales, but we can't seem to tame our tongue. James 3, 7 to 10 says this, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. For but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. So this is especially relevant in our culture today. How we talk about politicians on both sides of the aisle, how we, how we speak about and value all people made in the image of God, whether the unborn or refugees or African-Americans, how we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ, those whom we agree with, those whom we disagree with. We have a hard time controlling our words. Now, the, the solution is not looking within ourselves to change the way that we speak. It's looking outside of ourselves to Jesus. And so today, I want us to see what self-control looks like in the life of Jesus. I want us to see his quiet strength, his willing submission, his humble restraint, his, his beautiful silence that stood in stark contrast to the rest of of the world. And so, if you've got a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Matthew. If you're without a Bible this morning, that's okay. The words will be up there on the screen and back of me. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 27 is where I'm going to be. Matthew 27, verses 11 to 14. This is the Word of God. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Let me start by setting the scene leading up to these verses it's really the timeline of Jesus' trial. And so it begins with the Jewish trial under Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, this was really more of a preliminary hearing because the Jews didn't have the right to order and to execute anyone. That fell to the Romans under the governor, Pontius Pilate. So in Matthew 26, verse 59 to 63, we see Jesus before Caiaphas. Look there with me. Matthew 26 beginning with verse 59. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. 
And so these, these chief priests and council were made up what was called the Sanhedrin, about 70 people, and they were seeking false testimony in order to kill Jesus. They had already made up their mind. They charged him guilty, but they had no evidence to incriminate him. So they just tried to paint him in a bad light. And when Caiaphas sees this is getting nowhere, he tries to interrogate Jesus directly in verse 62. He says, and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And notice Jesus' response. Jesus remained silent. So the scene shifts as Jesus is now brought before Pilate in Matthew 27. We just read these words. Verses 12 to 14 say again, but when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer. So it's almost as if Pilate is begging Jesus to defend himself so that he can let him go. He's done nothing wrong. But again, the Bible says he remained silent. He gave no answer. Now, a third time on trial, Jesus stands before Herod in Luke chapter 23. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And so we see here again the contrast. Herod can't stop talking, but Jesus won't start talking. He won't say anything. And so they, they mock him. They dress him up like a king, and they send him back to Pilate where he's eventually crucified. So in all three parts of this trial, Jesus is silent. He says very little. Now, stepping back from this trial, I think sometimes we have a sanitized picture in our minds of what this looked like and what this sounded like. I think we kind of picture this, this peaceful, kind of uh, private, serene courtroom scene. But this was a public spectacle. More than likely, it was outside, stone-cold pavement, and this was a very volatile atmosphere. There was tension in the air, a lot of anger, a lot of clamor, a lot of shouting, accusing, mocking, confusion and rage, even, even blood. To sum it up, absolutely no one was showing self-control in that moment. Everyone was out of control. And I think it's a bit like our cultural moment right now. We're living in a very volatile time, tension in the air, tension in the news, on social media. Everyone's talking and almost no one's listening. And as Christians, we can get sucked right into this just like the rest of the world. We can, we can begin to sound like a lot of those gathered around Jesus' trial. I've been humbled this week and thinking about this in my own life. Do I see myself here in the lives of the people who are accusing Jesus? Think of Caiaphas, the high priest. In Matthew 26, 59, it says that they were seeking false testimony against Jesus. Later in Matthew 27, verse 18, we see that it was out of envy they delivered him up. So in this, we see that, that Caiaphas, he, he valued power. He, he valued prestige and was even willing to break the ninth commandment to find something Jesus said so he could twist it in his favor. And during this season, if we're not careful, 
we can fall into this as well. We can bear false witness against our neighbor unknowingly. We can be spreading conspiracy theories and fake news and slandering people that are made in the image of God. And this devalues the name of Jesus and the people involved. One author said this, he said, slander is often praised under the pretext of zeal. Have you noticed that? Slander is often praised under the pretext of zeal. We even consider it to be bold of someone to slander another under the pretext of zeal in our culture today. And so we can justify our harsh words against human beings made in the image of God. We can't get swept up into this, brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't be like Caiaphas. Secondly, think of Herod. In Luke 23, verses 8 and 9, it says again, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. So Herod had heard of Jesus. No doubt the, the miracles he had performed you know, were spreading around the country at that point. And so he was wanting to see Jesus so he could be entertained. Like, show me a sign, Jesus. Give me a miracle. But it doesn't appear as though Herod was looking for the kingdom of God. He's not really interested in the life to come. He just wanted to be entertained by Jesus. And when Jesus didn't do that, he wanted nothing to do with them. And this is a picture of the world. We have this mindset toward Jesus and the church. We just want to be entertained. We just want to be inspired. We just want this certain vibe that we feel when we come to church. One author named Jared Wilson said it this way, many people have been church hopping, and I added, or perusing online or skipping altogether this season because they didn't see joining a church in the first place as joining a family so much as a vibe. Having to meet different hours, different places, different ways, well, that changes the vibe. So they're looking elsewhere, trying to feel that vibe. We don't do family like that, or we shouldn't. If, if grandma said, next Thanksgiving, we're going to eat outside, we wouldn't find a new grandma. At least we shouldn't. You could tell grandma you don't like it, that you wish we could go back inside, but you're there Thanksgiving eating your food because she's grandma. Don't treat church like a consumer product. Church is a family, not a club, a program, or a style preference. So let's don't fall into the same mindset as Herod where we just want to be entertained. Number three, I think of Pilate. Pilate, in Mark chapter 15, we see that Pilate finally gives in to the wishes of the crowd. Do you remember this? So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate is a picture of the world in its indifference to Jesus. He refuses to decisively decide if Jesus really is Lord. He's just wavering back and forth and finally pushes Jesus aside in order to please the crowd. And so when life gets hard, when push comes to shove, what do you do with Jesus? Would you rather 
please other people or follow King Jesus no matter what. We can all fall into this. We cannot think the same as Pilate. Think of Peter. Now, he's not here in this immediate scene, but we skipped it. But before the trial, Jesus is arrested, as you recall, while praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet Peter, he, he wakes up from his sleep, maybe a little groggy at this point, and he comes out swinging. Do you remember this? He comes out swinging. John 18, verse 10, says this, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter was a fisherman, not so much a fighter. He missed his head, got the ear instead. Now, now Peter was doing this, right, to protect Jesus. But as we're going to see in a moment, Jesus told Peter, hey, put your sword away. What are you doing? Put your sword away. You remember he just puts that ear and just right back on. Poor Malchus. It's the only time he's mentioned in the Bible. Got a new ear. Sometimes we feel the need to defend Jesus, don't we? With our words, we end up slaying people in the process, people made in the image of God. Our, listen, our sharp words are like a sword cutting off the very ears of people listening, and we ruin our witness to a watching world. I mean, Peter meant well, right? Give him some credit. He meant well, but he didn't realize that Jesus, he was fighting a completely different battle. In that moment, instead of impulsively swinging his sword, he should have been fervently praying with his Savior, right? And think of the crowd in Mark 15, 11 to 14. Do you remember what happened here? The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? I mean, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. This is your typical herd mentality, mob mentality, how people are often influenced by their peers and join the chorus of conflict. We see this especially on social media, has a way of sucking us in. Before we know it, we're posting like 40 times a day on our Facebook page and putting things out there just to fuel the fire, right? Just to stir the pot so that the conflict would continue. And we look a lot like the world. Guys, I say all this as a fellow struggler along the journey. I am so given in my flesh to want to do the opposite of what James 1.19 says. James says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I find myself, I'm slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to anger. How about you? Seems like no one was showing self-control. Everyone was out of control, which is why into this noisy, angry setting, Jesus' silence is even more striking, isn't it? It's strange. I mean, his calm, quiet strength was strange and yet beautiful. It, it definitely stood out in the crowd. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Jesus knew when to speak up, and when he did, he spoke with grace and truth. He did. But we can learn something from his silence here. 
and how he shows us self-control. So for the rest of our time, I want us to, uh, to behold the beautiful silence of Jesus. I want you to see, I want you to behold the beautiful silence of Jesus as he makes his way to the cross. And we'll do so by answering this question, why the silence of Jesus? Why? First reason, he knows who he is. He knows who he is. In Matthew 26, 63 to 64, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So when, when pressed to give a response under oath, Jesus, on his own terms, quotes from Daniel chapter 7. Essentially, he's saying, yes, I am the Son of God. I am the King, and I'm the judge over the universe. And so even if it looks like I'm on trial, Caiaphas, you're the one on trial, because I am the King, and I am the judge. So it's, it's crazy you see the irony in the gospel story, right? The one who's being judged is the judge. The one who is mocked as king is, in fact, the king. And he's also the great high priest who loves you and wants to extend to you mercy. Listen, when you know who you are, you're secure in that, and you don't have to talk too much. You don't have to respond to every Facebook post. You don't have to defend yourself. Proverbs 26, 4 says, you don't have to answer a fool in his folly. Like Jesus, you're secure in who you are. Number two, why the silence of Jesus? Well, he knows who's in control. He knows who's in control. In John 19, 9 through 11, it says he entered his headquarters again, that's Pilate, and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So even though Herod and Pilate were in positions of authority, only one person really had authority in that moment, King Jesus. And it's a comfort to know that if Christ is in control over all the horrible events leading up to the cross, Surely he is sovereign now over all the current situations that are taking place in our world today. That means that even every political leader, past, present, or future, has no authority unless it's been given to him from above. And the one who reigns over all things, even now, on his throne, will still be there no matter what happens November 3rd. You know that, right? So like Jesus, you can be incredibly calm. You can be incredibly calm and confident, even silent at times because you know who's in control. Number three, why the silence of Jesus? His kingdom is not of this world. You've got to know that. His kingdom is not of this world. In John 18, verse 36, Jesus answered Pilate by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So in the context, Jesus, yes, he agrees, finally admits to being the king of the Jews, but he's not using that term the way others do. He's, 
He has no political aspirations because he's ushering in an entirely different kind of kingdom. You see, his concerns and his, his priorities, they're not political, but spiritual. He's above all that. He doesn't want you to bring him down into those little human categories. He is above all that. His kingdom is not of this world. If it were, Jesus said, his servants would have been fighting on his behalf. That means that we're not fighting a political or cultural war either. Listen, we're not here to win an argument. We're here to win lost people to Jesus. Do you know that? We are not here to win an argument, but to win people to Jesus Christ. One author said it this way, we're not at war with them, we're at war for them, for people's souls. Eternity is at stake, which is a much bigger deal than anything else going on in our culture today. His kingdom is not of this world. So why the silence of Jesus Number four, he came to fulfill Scripture. And we see this most clearly in the beauty of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53, verse 7, where Isaiah writes, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah speaks of the gentle, quiet nature of sheep. Christ was the Lamb of God who submitted quietly and willingly as he made his way to the cross. This one phrase, he opened not his mouth, is repeated twice for emphasis. He opened not his mouth. Such a beautiful phrase. Think about this. As Jesus is moving toward the cross, People are mocking him, ridiculing him. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him, put a crown of thorns on his head. Hail, King of the Jews. Scourged him on his back almost 40 times and then pinned him to a cross to bleed and to die on your behalf. He opened not his mouth the entire time. I don't know about you, but... I have to confess, I get sensitive when I feel attacked in relatively mild ways. I want to defend myself. If anyone had the right to retaliate and defend himself was Jesus, and he opened not his mouth to fulfill this scripture in Isaiah 53. Fifth and final reason why the silence of Jesus He was committed to die for us. He was committed to die for you. In the end, this was ultimately the reason for Jesus' silence. He was committed to die for us. Nothing could get in his way. I mean, even even though he felt the fury of the full temptation to lash out, he opened not his mouth. He did not sin. He didn't open his mouth because he came to bear your sin. He wouldn't let anyone or anything stop him from the torture and the death he would have to endure to save you from your sin. I think of the old hymn that says this, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Alleluia. What a Savior. What a 
You've got to know this wasn't stoic silence. So the application today isn't just be quiet and be silent, stoic like King Jesus. No, he wasn't that. He was humble and submissive to his Father because he loved us as sinners. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So much love, so much patience, so much kindness, so much self-control, so much fruit, right, shown in the silence of Jesus. You see, in the end, as we wrap up this series, in the end, the fruit of the Spirit is a beautiful portrait of Jesus. You see that? The, the, the fruit of the Spirit is a beautiful portrait of Jesus. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All nine cluster together to form the character of Christ. And if we want to be like him, we must keep looking to him. Because as we behold him, we become more and more like him. You've got to see him on the pages of scripture. You've got to look at his love, to take in his joy, reflect on his peace, consider his patience, and so on. And as you behold him, you'll become more and more and more like him. And the world will step back and say, there's something beautiful about us. And we will say, no, that's, that's Jesus in us. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled as we consider what Christ did for us on the cross. All of us in this room, me included, we have failed to follow you as we should. We do not bear this fruit as we ought. And yet, Jesus, you came to show us what it meant to live this perfect life and to die for us as sinners upon that cross. You did not open your mouth. You endured the torture, the death that we deserve for our sin. And you rose again, and you're alive, seated at the right hand of God, even interceding for us now. And we pray that as we make our way now into communion, our hearts would be moved again by what you did for us there at Calvary. Humble us under your mighty hand, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.